Today, we're going to talk about the fact that we believe in the local church. And so I'm going to go through a couple of verses of Scripture, but then I'm going to broaden out and talk to you more about the local church, kind of some things that we believe about it. Some of these things that I'll talk about today are are more my personal opinions than addressed in the doctrinal statement of Cedarville University. Uh, But I think it's important for us to think through some of these items. So I want to start off in this way. How many of you know what this is? I'll try to hold it still. It's up there. What is this? What is it? It's Grimace. But what, what Grimace is it? Do you know? It's, it's a beanie baby, right? Do you guys remember these? Where, where do you get a beanie baby? McDonald's. And what? A Happy Meal. There we go. All right. You want to hold on to that for me? Thank you. All right. That was a good catch, by the way. I'm just saying. You should see her throw a football. It's pretty impressive. It was the summer of 1979. McDonald's Corporation decided to try something brand new, so they created the Happy Meal. How many of you have ever had a Happy Meal? All right, there's a few of you that didn't raise your hands. I don't know where you're from, but we're going to McDonald's afterwards, and we're going to introduce you to some really unhealthy food. Um, The top executives thought that the box would be what drew the people to the meal. So the first box of a Happy Meal was actually this train car. It it was a circus train car, but what they noticed is everybody got the circus train car, they took the box, they wetted it up, and they threw it in the trash can. So they decided it's not about the box. What's a Happy Meal really all about? It's the toy inside. That's right. They learned that kids didn't care about the box, they throw it in the trash, so they shouldn't spend money on that. It's all about the toy. It always has been all about the toy. McDonald's creatively made arrangements with different groups like Disney. You've seen some of those, My Little Ponies and others. But the most profitable one of all was the Beanie Baby in the fall of 1997. One article states it this way. Actually, it was the doll tucked inside called a teeny Beanie Baby that fueled the madness. The larger Beanie Baby, the plush toys already had stormed the market across the country Patrons lined up in the pre-dawn hours before McDonald's opened to snag as many Happy Meals as possible just for the babies. Sometimes the food, untouched, was ditched in the nearest trash can. Before long, restaurants began posting a limit of 10 Happy Meals per customer. Now, can you imagine McDonald's having to post a sign limiting people to buying 10 Happy Meals and for them to look at the food which they had just prepared, get ditched into the trash cans to fill up their trash cans so that people could take the little toy and that's all. What they realized is this little toy that they put inside the Happy Meal had actually eclipsed their primary business. It became about the little toy and the little toy took over what they were there to do so they had to limit the number they sold so that people who actually went to McDonald's to eat food would have food to eat. Now, there's nothing wrong with a Happy Meal. My kids still enjoy Happy Meals. On occasion, I still enjoy a Happy Meal. Depends on what the toy is, right? If it's cool, it's cool. I'm just saying. There's nothing wrong with a Happy Meal. There's nothing wrong with the toy inside the Happy Meal. It's like the prize at the bottom of the Cracker Jack box. It's something you look forward to. It's a good thing, right? There's nothing bad inherently about it. But when the toy begins to take over the primary reason for the existence of the business, that's a problem. 
We live in an age of consumerism. And as I look out at local churches, and I love the local church, and I admire pastors who I think have some of the toughest jobs in the world, and they are on the front lines, but as I look out at some of the churches, I look out and recognize that a church exists for the preaching and the teaching of God's Word, for the fellowship of believers, for prayer. It it exists to do baptism and the Lord's Supper, to reach others with the gospel, to bear one another's burdens. And churches offer things sometimes to bring in lost people, and there's nothing wrong with offering programs or having events that attract lost people to come to a church or people to come that have never come to the church before. Those are good things. There's nothing wrong with those things because it does help us reach people, and that's part of what we want to do through a local church. But in this age of consumerism, I often wonder if at times the things we're offering, the programs, the music, the entertainment, the events, if that hasn't eclipsed the primary purpose and reason that we go to a local church. And if it does, if it does, then we have a problem. And perhaps that's why some of you and some of your generation make statements like, I am done with the local church. I do not like the local church. You'll hear people say things like, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. And I want to tell you, that's not an option. It's not an option to say I'm done with the local church. It's not an option to say I love Jesus, but I don't like the local church. The local church, bloodied and battered as she may be, is still the bride of Christ and the one for whom Christ died. And we cannot say we do not love the local church. So today I want to look at the local church in an age of consumerism, hopefully with some thought-provoking ideas. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, I'm going to have it for you on the screen. I should have told you what to turn to before I went through my introduction. You're supposed to mention it three times before you get to this point. I'm just now mentioning it once, so I blew that part. If you are a future preacher, do a better job than I did on that today. Matthew chapter 16, because then you have to ad-lib and let you guys get to where you're going. So Matthew chapter 16, as we look at this particular text, we're going to look at one verse to focus in. It's going to be verse 18. If you have your Bibles open, I hope you do, or your iPhones or whatever it may be, stand in honor of the reading of God's Word with me as we read beginning in verse 16, going through verse 18. Verse 16, it says, Simon Peter replied, and you know the context here, Jesus saying, who do men say that I am? And they gave several answers. He responded back and said, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied here and said, you are Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Dear Lord, I pray that today as we talk about our love for the local church, Lord, I pray that you would just help us to, to get a glimpse of what it should be and what it can be and of your passion and of your love and your desire for what you have established And Lord, help us to serve the local church well. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. And you may be seated. All right, taking that one verse, Matthew 16, 18, as our outline for today, we're going to look at three questions. The three questions are not going to back up and cover the previous section. I wish we had time, but we just don't. So the three questions is going to be, whose church is it? The second question is, what is meant by the word church? And then the last question is, what should the church do? In this context, we have our text telling us that Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So our first question, whose church is it? Well, the church belongs to Jesus. 
You see that very clearly where Jesus says, this is my church. Now, there's an application for us that we'll get to there, but the church belongs to Jesus. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's the church of Jesus. It's Jesus's church. He established the church. He died to redeem the believers who make up the church. And so the church is Jesus's church, Matthew 16, 18. We see also in scripture that Jesus shed his blood for the church. Acts 20, 28, the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So when we talk about the church and when we say things that may be critical of the local church, of the congregation of believers who gather together, we have to be cautious and we have to be careful because we recognize that Jesus died on the cross to purchase the church of God with his own blood. If you say you love Jesus, how can you then turn around and talk badly about something which he purchased with his own blood? Now, I recognize there are fallen churches and I know why. It's because they're made up of fallen men and women just like me and just like you. But recognize that Jesus loved the church so much he died for the church. Recognize also that persecution against the church is persecution against Jesus. Acts 9, 4 records Saul, and Saul is on that road to Damascus, and that blinding light comes up against him. And as that blinding light comes against him, you hear a voice, and that voice says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me. Jesus didn't say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute believers or why do you persecute the local church? He asked Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Persecution against the local church is persecution against Jesus himself. Jesus takes that personally and we have to recognize that if we love Jesus and we love what the Bible has revealed to us about Jesus and we want to grow closer to Jesus, we should love the church Because the church is not only something he died for, it's something that he takes personally, and we also see that the church then is the bride of Christ. You see that in Ephesians 5 where there's the context of the marriage relationship and the church and Christ compared together. You see it in 2 Corinthians 11. You see it in Revelation 19 and chapter 21 where we understand that the bride of Christ, that that wedding feast ceremony there in the book of Revelation. And so saying to somebody that you love Jesus, but that you do not love his church is almost akin to saying to somebody, I really want to hang out with you, but leave your wife at home because I don't like her very much. Now imagine if one of you said, I want to come over and hang out at your house. Can I come over and, and, and just, just chill for a little while, watch some NCAA March Madness where North Carolina's the number one seed. I just had to work that in there, but yeah, Tar Heel fan. All right. And you say, I want to hang out, but you know what? Your, your wife drives me crazy. I, I just, I don't like her. What do you expect I'm going to do at that point? Am I going to say, yeah, you're welcome to come over and I'll just tell her to leave. How many of you think that's a good idea? All right, I need to see two of you after. I'm just kidding. You didn't raise your hand. Nobody would say that's a wise thing to do. Some of you are in dating relationships and you're getting serious about the person you're dating, but you have friends who may not necessarily like the person that you're dating and they want to hang out with you, but they don't want to hang out with you and the person that you care significantly about. And you experience that torn nature in your own mind of having a friend who says, I want to go hang out with you, but I don't want to hang out with you and with other friends, including that person that you care deeply about. And in your mind, you're oftentimes thinking, well, that's great, but if I'm married to this person, you don't like this person, then eventually we're not going to 
be friends. It's just not going to happen because this is a relationship that's going to last forever. If you don't like hanging out with my bride, you don't like hanging out with me, and that's just not something that's going to work. If you come to me and you start talking bad about my wife, it's going to be time for us to have prayer and to lay hands on maybe without prayer and to have a few other serious conversations because that's just not cool, right? Now, you know I'm joking and in jest here, but it's really not cool to talk about somebody's bride in a negative way to them. If they don't respond back, then what are they doing if they won't defend their own bride? And so here we see the church as the bride of Christ, and it helps us to think about the fact that we should value the local church because Jesus values the local church. It is His church. And we all have been to churches and we've walked in the doors of churches, and we may say, gosh, it was just boring. And, you know, the preacher just, he just didn't, he didn't spill, fill my spiritual cup, or, or I just didn't like the music, or the, it was too cold in the auditorium, or it was just so hot there in the sanctuary, or the pews were just so hard, or they had these seats that were so comfortable, I went to sleep, or you name your frustration. You've been to a local church before, and you thought to yourself, this was not done well. So let me say this to you. Go serve in a local church and help the local church do it well. Anything we do in the name of Christ, we should do with excellence and we should do it well. We should have quality music. We should have well-prepared preachers of the Word. We should do it with excellence in the children's ministry and in the youth ministry and in the Sunday school or small groups or life groups. We should care for one another. We should do all that with excellence. But as we look out, some of what I see in our society today is not that people are looking and saying it's not being done with excellence. Some of what I see is consumerism infiltrating it so that we look at the church and think about it being my church rather than look at the church and think about it being Jesus's church. In fact, in Shopping for God, James Twitchell compares our religious choice to that of all secular choices. These commercials come on TV, they infiltrate our minds, they affect how we think about everything, including religion, and he tries to make the case that what happens in secular society thinks, affects the way we think religiously. So AT&T offers the right choice. Wendy says there is no better choice. Pepsi is the choice of a new generation. Coke is the real choice. And then Taster's Choice Coffee says the choice for taste. Now, I don't agree with that at all. I think Renova is the place to go for coffee of taste. But that's what they say is the choice for taste. And so here you see in all of society, we look out and they allow us to have things our way with the way we pick them. This happens not only in choices, but it also happens in customization. When I was young, uh, this is going to sound like one of those stories my dad used to tell and I used to laugh when he did it, but we had cassette tapes. Some of you remember before cassette tapes, back to eight track or vinyl albums as well. I've seen a few of those. And do you know that on those, you could not press a button and go to the song you wanted to hear? Uh, you might be able to lift... <laughs> There's one person in the room that really doesn't like that. Yeah. You might be able to lift the needle and place it in a closer spot. You might fast forward the cassette tape, but you couldn't just press a button. In fact, do you know what happens now? What I find myself doing now is I don't even buy the whole record because let's face it, back in, in my day and time, they had one or two good songs on each of the cassettes. And then if they had some other good songs, they would save those for the next cassette so that you would buy it for one or two good songs. You'd have to buy the whole thing and listen to all of it. And, and you don't have to do that anymore. 
You download the one song that was popular off of what they did, and that's the only song you put on your playlist, and you create your own playlist. And what we've done in religious life to some degree is decided I'm creating my own religious playlist so that I can have my spiritual cup filled so that I don't have to get involved with other people, and I don't have to be around people I don't like, and I don't have to bear their burdens, and I don't have to get messy with the local church. I'm just going to watch this little bit on TV, and I'm going to listen to this little bit of music, and I'm going to listen to this on my phone, and I'm going to pick and choose and create my own personal customized religious ceremony, or we look at it like a restaurant, or we look at it like a rewards program. We look at it as though we're shopping for God, and we go to this church, and we say, I like this church, but I don't like the music here. This music's not what I want, so I'm going to this other church, and we start going to this other church for a little while, and we say, this church doesn't have the program I want, and so we move, and we start going to another church, and then all of a sudden, this church does something that we don't like, and so we decide, I'm going to another church, and we end up hopping around and shopping for churches based off of what? It's not off of theology. It's not off of whether they're preaching heresy. It's off of my consumeristic needs of what I want. I want to tell you that if you ever find the perfect church, here's what I want you to do. Take a picture. I'm doing that like it's with a camera. It would be with your phone these days. Take a picture. Instagram it, tweet it, Facebook it, and then leave as fast as you can before you mess it up perfect church doesn't exist. So what I want you to do is get involved in the church that Jesus died for, that Jesus loves, and make it better and serve and love people and be around people. It's Jesus's church. It's not our church. Over the course of your lifetime, if you are not a member of a local church, I don't know that you are a believer and a follower of Christ. Let me say that again because it's a bold statement. But if over the course of your lifetime, you are not a member of a local church, I don't know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Christ died for the church. He shed his blood for the church. He established it as his church. The church is the bride of Christ. And we should want to be part of what Jesus values that much. If we love Jesus, we should be active members serving in a local church. What's our application for this? Number one, we must not reject the church. You've been to a bad one. Perhaps you've been burned by a church. Perhaps you've experienced a pastor that didn't treat you well. We are all fallen individuals. Pastors are still humans and they are sinful. Don't put them up on a pedestal. Jesus is the only one you should look to. If one minister, a youth minister or something did something that that burned you or that hurt you, don't lay that blame for one person on all of the church. They are sinful just like we are all sinful. Don't walk away or reject the church. We must guard against apathy. Uh, Well, I find we all get there at some point in time. You go to church over and over. It becomes a routine. It becomes the mundane. You do it without even thinking about it. You show up to church and you don't invest in the lives of others and they're not investing in your life. You're just there. You're going through the motions. And the next thing you know, you go because you feel like you have to go, but you're not involved. You're not plugged in. You're not expecting God to do anything. And apathy has set in. Don't be apathetic about the local church. Think back. How many of you were saved in a local church service? Raise your hand. How many of you were baptized in a local church? Raise your hand. How many of you have felt God's conviction of sin in a local church service? Raise your hand. How many of you experienced a call, whether it's to your vocation that you're pursuing now or to ministry or to be involved in missions or to do something of that nature in a local church service? Raise your hand. 
All of those things happened to me in a local church. I am passionate about the local church, and I hope you will be too. We must guard against consumerism. Society feeds it to us every day. Every time we turn on our television, every time we look at ads in a magazine, every time we look at billboards, consumerism hits us in the face. We must guard against looking at the local church as though it is a restaurant to fulfill our needs, as though it is a shopping place where we fill our spiritual cup and leave without investing anything. We are not to be consumers in the local church. We are to be producers in the local church. We are to go and serve. If you can go and serve, I'll tell you some of the happiest days in ministry I've ever had was doing Team Kid at my local church playing with with kids and going on. We would do Bible stories and we would make them fun and they would laugh and you would see their faces light up with emotion and we would have pool parties and we would do all sorts of fun things and just watch little kids grow in Christ as they learned more about Jesus. Those are some of the best pure moments of ministry you can ever have. And if you're out there and you say, I want to be a preacher later on in life, if you want to be a preacher, my challenge to you is to go share the gospel and teach kids. If you can teach three-year-olds, four-year-olds, and five-year-olds and hold their attention, you will have no problem with any congregation anywhere in the world. I'm just saying it's good practice, good experience for you to do children's ministry. Go and change diapers. Go and serve so that other people can be involved in in the congregational setting to hear the word preached. Go and get involved in helping the poor. Go get involved in a service that helps with refugees. Go get involved and do things. And be careful. Because sometimes we walk into a church and we get in that routine and then somebody walks in the doors and they don't look like us, whether they have more facial jewelry than we're comfortable with or whether they have more tattoos than we like or whether their clothes are a little ragged or whether their clothes, there's not nearly enough of them for our liking. And we look at people and prejudge them rather than serving them and loving them and recognizing that God died for them just as much as he died for you and me wearing our suits or our nice clothes or our tight haircuts or whatever the case may be. We should love other people and that should happen in the local church and we should be passionate about that ministry. What is meant by the word church? We start off messing this up very early on in life. Anybody ever seen this before? What is this? Here's the church. There's the steeple. Open it up. And there's the people. Do you know how wrong theologically that is? Do you know how many kids we've taught this to? We do it in just about every church does it in just about every kid's class. There's the church, really? So church means building. I'm going to church. If church means building, then answer for me, please, why it is that nowhere in the New Testament does the word ecclesia, the Greek word translated as church, have the connotation of building? Nowhere. Not one single verse. Instead, what you find is that ecclesia is formed from two Greek words, ek meaning out and kaleo meaning to call. So if you just took the Greek words and looked at it, it would be the called out ones. Now you can make too much of this when you look at just the Greek words, but you understand that there's also something to be taken from this and that we are called out from those who do not know Christ to those who know Christ so that we can live a life of service to Christ through his gathered body of believers, which is the local church. 
Ecclesia means gathered. It means the ones who are called out to be together, a group that has been called out and gathered together. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, Ecclesia is never used to translate the Hebrew word idah, but it is used 77 times for the Hebrew word kahal, which indicates an actual assembly. Those two words there's a difference in the way those two words are understood. And what ecclesia means is it's those who are called together, those who are assembled together. There's 114 uses of ecclesia in the New Testament that I've been able to track. And I have documented every one of these in the Greek, laid them out, looked at the verses, tried to, to chart them as to what they actually mean. And I've got a document with all of them laid out, every single verse where they're listed. And the best I can tell, 85 to 95 of them, some are a little debatable, but 85 to 95 of them talk about a local congregation. The rest of them then refer to the church in general. Like if I were to say to you lawyer, and I intended all lawyers across the United States, that would be a general use of the word lawyer. If I were to say to you the word church in a general sense, I could refer to all churches. But mostly in the New Testament, you see particular references to specific churches, a local church use. The other usage, and there are some that refer to the future gathering of all believers of all times. So 85 to 95, that means the vast majority of usage in the New Testament is that it's the local church that's in mind. Now, let me say this to you. We like talking about a universal church. We like talking about an invisible church, and there's nothing wrong theologically with talking about those concepts or ideas. But if the New Testament's focus is 85 to 95 of 109, on the local church, our focus then should also be on the local church. Our focus should not be on some universal, invisible church. Our focus should be on the local church where God puts his focus in the New Testament, talking to us about the things that we should do there. In fact, you may be asking the question, wait a second, if ecclesia means the called out ones, if it means those who are gathered together, why is it that ecclesia is translated church in the New Testament? Why is it that the translator, some translator somewhere, doesn't just say the gathering? The grouping of people, the called out ones. Why don't they translate it differently? Well, it goes back to the 1611 version of the King James Bible where King James gave five rules of translation and rule number three in the rules of translation was that you cannot translate old ecclesiastical words into some new word, but you have to use it in the same way it was used. Specifically, he referenced the word church. So ecclesia had to be translated as the word church in the King James 1611 edition, and from that point forward, it has come to us as church. It's also true with baptized not being translated as immerse, but being transliterated over from baptizo in the Greek to baptize in the New Testament is King James rules. So when we look at a church and we see us the gathering, it's more than just a gathering of people because people gather all the time and that doesn't make it a church. We could gather together at Chuck's, that doesn't make it a church. So what is a church? Well, when you talk about a church, you've got the being of a church and you've got the well-being of a church. And I've got a chart for you up here on the screen. At a bare minimum, in order to have an assembly called a church, you have to have the gospel. If you have a group of people gathered together and they don't have the gospel, they're not a church. If you have a group of people gathered together and they have the gospel, it doesn't mean they're a church, but they at least have to have the gospel. And they have to have the ordinances to some degree. 
They have to have baptism and the Lord's Supper because those are the two ordinances given to the church and those two ordinances are depicting the gospel and baptism is the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, identifying with him. And the Lord's Supper is looking back in remembrance, looking around in fellowship and looking forward in anticipation to the Lord's coming again. And that's celebrated with the quantania, the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts as the fellowship of believers. And you have to have believers intentionally gathered together to say we're a church. We are a group of believers gathered together here today, but we don't call ourselves a church. We are not covenanted together to be a church and to bear one another's burdens. We do not practice baptism on campus. There is no baptistry up here on the stage. We do not serve the Lord's Supper in chapel because those are ordinances given to the local church. That's for the local church to do. That's not for us to do. Now, you may say that's a very minimal church. You're right, it is. And you might want to add something to that, but as you think through this more, I think you, you may agree with me that that's the minimal list. Because a new church plant may not have a full-time pastor, they may have a part-time pastor, or they may have somebody who's stepping up to teach the Word, and, and would you call them a church if they didn't have a full-time pastor, and perhaps. And so you move from being or just existing to the well-being, and when you move to the well-being, you could look at things like the offices of pastor, elder, or deacon, church discipline rightly administered with restorative purposes, the ordinances rightly administered. We might argue amongst some of our differences in the room, whether that should be by infant baptism or belief baptism, by immersion, or by sprinkling. And so having the ordinances is the being of a church, but the well-being of a church would be practicing the ordinances rightly. The ordinances rightly administered, as Calvin would say. A regenerate congregation would be helpful if you had saved people in that church as the members of it. A missionary-focused Bible preaching If you were to look at biblical theology, at good, godly, qualified leadership, all of those things would make the church better. But for the being of a church, you have to have the gospel, the ordinances, and believers intentionally gathered for those purposes. Now, two points of application for you on this is, one, this is why we don't do baptism in the Lord's Supper on campuses. We're not a church. That's not our intent. That's not our purpose. We can gather to worship Christ. We can gather to hear the word preached, but, but we don't do the ordinances here on campus. Also, it means this. You need to be a member of a local church. Chapel five days a week is not your church. Cedarville University is not your church. This is not your local fellowship of believers, and for you to hop around each semester to a different church or each week to a different church or each year to a different church doesn't allow you to be plugged in and serving so that when you graduate, you will go out and get into service and be a producer and not just a consumer. I want you plugged into a local church. I want you serving at a local church. I want you to join together and to go to a church and say, how can we help? What can we do to get involved? How can we make your life better? And to serve those years at Cedarville actively in engaged in helping a local church and seeing lives changed and seeing people pour into your life. I want you to go to a local church and find somebody that's much older that you think is wise and say, would you pour into my life? Would you help me grow? I want you to go to a local church and find somebody that looks up to you like you are a rock star and say, I want to help disciple you. I want to help bring you along in your walk with Christ. I want you pouring into the lives of other people. I want you actively engaged in a local church. What is meant by the word church? The church is the people gathering to glorify God. In a world that we live in, 
with mega churches where people don't know each other, with multiple services, with multiple sites, with multiple locations, a lack of interaction, I encourage you to be involved in a small group if you're in one of those bigger churches in a life group where you have life on life with other people. When you leave this place, I encourage you, please quickly join a local church, get plugged in to a local church, live life with other people that can speak into your life so that you are living life together in a local church. The church is primarily local. So be a member of a local church. It's not enough to say, I'm going to go out fishing and worship God while I'm on the lake. No. Jesus didn't die for the lake. He died for the local church. The local church is the bride of Christ. Be a member of a local church and recognize that the church is bigger than any of us. The church is global. There are people being persecuted and killed in other countries for worshiping Christ. We should serve them well and pray for them and lift them up. We should serve countries where the gospel is not known by using our resources to help support them by going and being on mission with them. And by all means, if you find the perfect church, don't join it and mess it up. You you get my point there, right? There are no perfect churches. Don't hold your pastor to a standard that you couldn't meet. If you're so frustrated with your local church that you think you could do it that much better, go try to plant one. Get in their shoes and feel exactly how difficult and hard it would be to do church in the right way with all of the right qualifications. Let's quickly move to the last point. What does the church do? Teach the Word. Worship together through Word, through music, through prayer, through other things. Service to others evangelism to those who need to hear the gospel, fellowship. The Holy Spirit has come and it brings that koinonia, that fellowship in the book of Acts. We have fellowship with other believers. What should we do? As I look at this, I can't help but think about the one another passages as a great vision for us as how we should see our local church. So we look at those one another passages and we see, first of all, that we should love one another. I've got a host of verses for you there. I'm not going to go through them. I'm just going to read the main points to you. But just to let you know, I've looked at Scripture to try to back this up. We should be loving one another. How many of you want to go to a local church where you love one another? Be that person at that local church then that loves others. Seek peace and unity. Avoid strife. Rejoice and suffer with one another. How awful is it when we go to a local church and something bad happens to somebody, and at some point there is almost a, a relief that it's not you. There's almost a glad it happened to them and not to me type mentality. We should bear one another's burdens. We should suffer with them. And when something good happens to somebody else, we shouldn't look with jealousy and say, why them, why not us? We should rejoice with them. That should bring joy to our heart that a fellow believer in Christ, somebody that we love and we care about, something great, God is doing something through their life and they're receiving recognition for it. Care for one another physically and spiritually. Number six, we are to watch over one another and hold one another accountable. And this is one of the main reasons you need to be in a local church is to have somebody that will watch over and hold you accountable in life so that if you start veering off the path, they are able to grab a hold of you and say, hey, brother, that's not the right way to go. We are to look, looking to ourselves to restore one another. We are to make sure that we are caring for one another in a good God-glorifying way. We are to edify one another. We are to bear with one another. We are not to sue one another 
there because that disgraces the gospel in public and demonstrates the idolization of material possessions and our selfishness internally. We are to pray for one another. We are to separate from, from people destructive to the church, and we are to contend for the gospel. We should be actively pursuing ministry. We should love the widows and the orphans. We should look at people that don't look like us and want to get to know them so we can share the gospel with them. We should not expect them to act just like we do. We should expect them to be who they are and for God to change them. They can't get cleaned up good enough to come to God. You come to God just as you are, and the church helps along the way to to teach people all things. That is the Great Commission. That's the vision for the local church. What does the local church do? You've seen it. Here's my last point to you. Gates don't attack. Jesus says, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Gates don't attack. Gates defend. So the church should be on the offensive, and we should never retreat in fear. The battle belongs to Jesus, and he has already won the victory. So, brothers and sisters, the church may not be perfect. It may be fallen in some places. It may be worse than others. It may be battered. It may be bloodied. But it is the church of Jesus Christ. It is the bride of Christ. It is the church that he died for. And ultimately, the church will have victory because Jesus has victory. We are not to be retreating from the culture, worried about decisions of some Supreme Court or of politicians or of who's going to be elected, even though we might look at it and wonder, what in the world are people thinking? doesn't cause us to fear because we are followers of the king, the ultimate king from all times. We are members of the church and the church will have ultimate victory. It is Jesus' church and he has already won. So when you graduate, when you leave this place, look at how you can get involved in God's great mission and God's great purpose. And for some of you, that's going to be overseas. For some of you, that may mean using your engineering degrees in Africa or teaching English in China or being a nurse in a closed country like Pakistan. It may mean that you're going to take your pharmacy degree and minister to the untouchables of India. It may mean that you're going to go to Boston, or it may mean that you're going to go to Chicago, or it may mean that you're going to go to a small city in the Midwest, and you're going to use your degree, and you're going to be involved in a local church, and you're going to help a church planner. You are walking away with a Bible minor with more sermons heard in four years than anybody else at the church you go to is going to have heard in four years just because of chapel. You have led in small groups. You have done small group Bible study and ministry. You are equipped to lead small groups in a local church. You are equipped to serve in a local church. Go be the pastor's best friend. Go to a church and have them look at you and call you blessed because you want to serve and you want to go there to be a producer and not a consumer. Go and change the world in the name of Jesus Christ. And if the church is broken now, don't give up on it. Go fix it. Go be part of the solution and quit pointing out the problems. We need to love the local church and to serve people through the local church. We need to make sure that we are actively participating in the gospel for the glory of God. That's my challenge for you. The grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Isaiah 40, verse 8. Dear God, help us 
in our moments of cynicism, in our moments of doubt, to be actively involved and plugged in in your local church, spreading the gospel throughout the globe for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And you are dismissed.